As we remain standing, I invite you to turn in God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Our text this evening begins at verse 11 and continues through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, and the portico called Solomon's astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and flower fades, but God's word abides forever. Ever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you hungry to receive your word. We thank you that your word is that living bread through which we are nourished. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would fill our soul with good things, not having tasted of your faithfulness and truth, we might be changed from glory into glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When you consider the signs of Scripture, the signs and wonders, whether that is the ten plagues in Egypt or the fire that fell from heaven on Mount Carmel, or any of the miracles of Christ and the apostles, one vital point to grasp is this. 
None of these are silent signs. What I mean from the, by this is that these signs are never to be detached or seen as independent from the word of God. In fact, when we consider the miracles, we can see that God, in a way, is doing spade work. He is paving the road for the declaration of his word. The miracles are to open the eyes of those who witness them for the purpose that their ears might then be open to hear God's voice speaking from heaven. This is what happens here in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John have just raised up a man who has been lame from birth, who had been sitting at the beautiful gates of the temple in Jerusalem. And immediately subsequent to this, the people are astounded, and Peter sees it and says, why are you astounded, or why do you wonder at this, or stare at us? Because we did not do this with our own power or piety. God has done this. Miracles, if I could put it this way, are inbreakings of God's power to raise the dead. The very God who spoke and all things came to be, the God who raised his son from the dead is now proving that he is at work, that his hand is present as such miracles as this are worked and performed. The apostle Peter will then unpack the meaning of this miracle for his hearers, and that includes us, as he calls those in the temple to faith in the risen servant and son. Firstly, the blessing of Abraham. Secondly, the raised up prophet. And finally, turn to him and live. Well, firstly, the blessing of Abraham. There are two references to Abraham in our passage. The first is in verse 13, where he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And then in verse 25, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God make with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, why is he bringing to their attention this man, Abraham, who has passed from the scene so long ago, about 2,000 years prior to this? Remember, the Jews in Jerusalem, those who are gathered here in the temple, if you ask them, who are you? What is your identity? What sets you apart? How would they respond? Well, near the top of that list would be the answer, we are the sons of Abraham. We are the offspring of the patriarch. 
But observe that more than Abraham, Peter is referring to Abraham's God. The God of Abraham, verse 13. The covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, verse 25. God spoke. God called. God chose. And if that's true for Abraham then that continues to be the case for those who are the sons of Abraham. And here's the rub. Peter is emphasizing that there is no true lineage that can be tied to Abraham, no true identity or being a true heir of his, without having faith in Abraham's God. Faith is the DNA that all of Abraham's true sons share together. If you are really Abraham's offspring, what will you do? You will have the same faith in the same Lord that revealed himself to Abraham. The Lord who made a covenant with Abraham while his while he was sleeping, I will be your God, who promised to give him and his seed an inheritance. He is the God of our fathers, verse 13. And Peter is effectively asking them, is he your God? Now, one of the main forms of deception that had shown itself on the part of the Jews in the time of Christ and the apostles, was the claim, we are Abraham's offspring, no matter what we do, no matter how we act, no matter where we are in terms of our obedience and our worship of God. Remember what John the Baptist preached? Do not begin to say to yourselves, we are Abraham's offspring, because what can God do? Even from the rocks, he is able to raise up Abraham's children. You know, it's similar to those who live in this part of the country. Those who will say something like this. My grandfather was a Christian. My mother was a Christian. How dare you ask me if I'm a Christian? But you must not think in these terms. Yes, it's a blessing, an advantage to be born into a Christian household. We can think, for example, of Timothy, who was following in the footsteps of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. But faith is not simply a matter of your pedigree, where you've come from. It's a matter of your personal response to the word of Christ. Faith, then, must be called for afresh in every generation. What does Peter tell his audience here in verse 19? Repent, therefore, and turn again. And then, again in verse 26, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
there must be a turning for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. You still have the same issue that we are all born as sinners, whether with or without the law of Moses. And we are finding here that truly the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, with respect to what has taken place, Peter is conveying in no uncertain terms that when God, through the apostles, raised this lame man up, he is testifying to the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Notice verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, what has he done? Glorified his servant, Jesus. And that glorifying of Jesus is in the resurrection. And in the resurrection, what is Jesus doing? He is being sent to the people. God, having raised up his servant, verse 26, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The covenant that God made with Abraham, it has now been confirmed and fulfilled through the seed and offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. Everything that God has intended and planned to do all that he announced he would do is now summed up and realized in this, the servant of the Lord. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to do what? To bless you. To bless you. What blessing is that? It's the blessing of Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What is the most essential and sterling blessing that God has granted to Abraham and his offspring? Is it not righteousness through faith in him? Abraham's great act was looking up, and as God said, you will have as many children as the stars in the sky. It was to believe God. Genesis 15, 6. He amened. He said amen to the word of God. And what was the result? This was counted to him as righteousness. One of Abraham's great titles in the Bible is friend of God. We were all born, Paul says in Colossians 1, alienated from God, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. That's our condition. That's our nature. But now in the gospel, God has brought us near and he has blessed us in order that we might have a right relationship, a reconciled relationship with him. That is the blessing that 
Peter is proclaiming. And we could say that the raising up of this lame man who could not walk, it's like an x-ray. It gives us a window into the inner and unseen heart cure that is brought about by faith in Jesus. Again, notice verse 19. Repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. The Apostle Peter is echoing what Paul writes in Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's the blessing of Abraham. But secondly, we see the raised up prophet. Notice verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets. Now, Peter is operating here with the principle of wisdom. And that is that sons are to listen to their fathers. Proverbs chapter 4 tells us, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. In calling them the sons of the prophets, what is Peter telling them? That they must submit to and yield to the prophetic word. They stand under the authority of the prophets, just as a son stands under the authority of his father. And Peter uses the plural prophets in verse 21. But then in verse 25, he singles out a singular, one prophet. Who is that? Moses. Moses is the head of the whole body of the Old Testament prophets. And he stands apart from the rest because while other prophets receive their, the word from the Lord in visions and dreams, the Bible tells us that Moses heard from the Lord face to face. That God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Directly and personally. Only Moses was invited to the summit of Sinai, into the glory cloud, to behold the majesty of God and to hear his voice directly. And there was proof of that, wasn't there? When he came down with a shining and glowing face. Now we could spend a good deal of time reflecting on this, but the basic point is this. If Moses is the greatest prophet... And if the men of Israel are called the sons of the prophets, then, by implication, what must they do? They must listen to Moses. They must heed his word. Peter could have brought up many different passages from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. There's a lot that he could have brought to their attention. But what does Peter do? He picks out one text in verse 22, and that is from Deuteronomy 18, where we read Moses saying, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Of the many faithful words of Moses that are recorded, don't miss this one, which is one of the most critical utterances that came from his mouth. There is another prophet to come. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Moses is part of the scaffolding that is on the building. And if you know the worker that is constructing the building on the scaffolding, you know he is doing the work of preparation, that the construction project is not yet complete. For Moses to say what he says here in Deuteronomy 18 is to tell us, and to tell the people of Israel specifically, I am not the be and end all of the prophets. Though he is the first servant to lead the people up out of the house of bondage in Egypt, he is not going to be God's last servant. We could paraphrase it this way. Congregation of Israel, God has revealed himself to me and through me, but he's not done revealing, and he's not done working. To put it another way, the canon is not closed with Moses. And one reason we understand this is because Moses himself anticipates another who is to come. Some of you might be a fan of trains, which I am to a certain extent. I enjoy going to train museums, riding steam-powered trains, bullet trains. And I understand that there are ways to build train stations that account for entering and exiting cars, how many platforms there are going to be, and so forth. But there are stations that you build, for example, when you've reached the coastline and the cliffs by the ocean, where you know that train isn't going any further. And that station would be called the terminal. When it comes to the kingdom train, Moses never defined himself and his prophetic ministry as the last stop on the kingdom train. If you want to know this, simply read the Pentateuch, and pay attention to the ways in which he uses the phrase in times to come, in days to come, in future times. Moses, as a prophet, indicates that the mission he was sent on is in no way to be read as God's final, consummate mission. You claim Moses as your own, Peter is asking, Are you really paying attention to what Moses told you? Now, there's a specific word that I believe draws Peter's mind to Deuteronomy 18. And it's the action word, the verb. We can almost circle and underline it. What is the Lord going to do? Now, he could have used many other words 
We could think of the Lord will send you a prophet. The Lord will provide for you a prophet. The Lord will bring to you a prophet. But what is the specific word that we have here in verse 22? The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet. Can you guess in the Greek translation of the Old Testament what this word is? It's the word that refers to the resurrection. In other words, God will resurrect for you a prophet. Peter, having been an eyewitness of the resurrection himself, notice that he says, of this we are witnesses. He now reads the Old Testament, including the prophet Moses, with resurrection eyes. The spirits of Christ within him, within the prophets, were predicting the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. This prophet that Moses is referring to, that is raised up, that is brought forth, will deliver God's final saving word. What if we were to send out flyers to the whole county around us and to say on the postcard, Moses is going to appear in our church next week. There might be some response. But I can assure you of this. If Moses himself came and appeared in our midst, he would say nothing different, nothing different at all than what's already been written in the law and the prophets. He would stand and simply point to what's been recorded In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up a prophet for you, like me, from among your brothers. Indeed, the Lord has raised up such a prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Moses, Jesus would lead an exodus. Luke chapter 9, Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're speaking with Jesus. What do they speak of? Luke 9.31 says, They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, that is, his exodus. Jesus, a servant and prophet who would lead a people not out of bondage to an earthly king, but out of the tyrannical powers of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus, who would deliver us from the domain of Satan, who would bind the strong man and plunder his goods. Like Moses, this prophet would be resisted by the people, his brethren, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. But even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? 
verse 14. Peter says that with respect to Christ, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Here is the prophet who is shut out, cast out, silenced by the leaders and the congregation. But unlike Moses, this servant, this prophet, will be put to death in the sight of the nation, lifted up on a tree. The God-cursed man. Unlike Moses, the burial place of this prophet will be made known. And finally, unlike Moses, this prophet, this servant, is glorified by being raised from the dead. What does God say concerning his son, both at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Notice verse 22. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. We find the blessing of Abraham, the raised up prophet, but finally turn to him and live. There is a sobering Warning here. It shall be, verse 23, that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. God is forming a people. He is gathering a holy people to himself. Will you be part of that congregation? Will you be part of that people? That's what Peter is asking the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those in the temple courts. Will you be in faith counted as among the true sons of the prophets by believing in God's Son, Jesus Christ? Or will you reject the word and be condemned in the end, refusing to heed him who is the way, the truth, and the life. The call goes out to them. As God, through Christ, in his resurrection, sends his servant to them now a second time. The first time, in his time of humiliation, they acted and responded to Jesus with ignorance. Notice verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. They were blind to who Jesus was as the Savior, as the Messiah. But now, the time of ignorance is over. God has unveiled the truth, the heart of the matter, that this one, Jesus, is both Lord and Christ, the one who was crucified. Do you hear the keys rattling in Peter's pocket? Not earthly keys, but the keys of the kingdom given to him by Jesus in Matthew 16. What are those keys? The keys of the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel. As he takes out these keys, he is seeking 
for his hearers to be reconciled to God through repentance and faith. Remember that for Peter himself, he had experienced this restoration and reconciliation. For he in his own life had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus found him, met him, and restored him. And so he turns, having been restored himself, to then proclaim the message of restoration. Repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. God has turned to us. Hosea chapter 14. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall blossom as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. God, in mercy, has turned to us. In the resurrection, God is running out to us with arms open wide. And so, the call for us comes as well. Repent and believe in the gospel. Change your minds. Bring them into alignment with the mind of God revealed in the gospel. And what will be the result? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What is the relation between times of refreshing and restoring of all things? Verse 21. One is a foretaste of the other. The times of refreshing means the age of blessing that God pours out like water on thirsty ground. Holiness, as it begins in the soul through faith, is the commencement of the life of heaven upon earth. According to verse 21, heaven has received the Lord because he really is the first man who is fit and equipped for the life of heaven. But he's not going to be by himself. Scripture says he comes into heaven and says, Here I am and the children God has given to me. Are you part of that procession? Following the Lord, following Jesus, who promises to those with faith that he is bringing many sons to glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gates of righteousness that have been opened to us through your Son. We thank you that he is the door, that he is the way. Lord, we pray that we might not boast in anything except in the cross of Christ, through whom we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.